Hello friends, it's your death sentence for this week. Uh, If you've not heard it before, it's a podcast where we read books and listen to death metal and um, that can hopefully serve to break down the barriers that divide us so the world can come together and we can all die as one. Uh, We've got someone on the show today who I've been listening to and reading for a good long while now. Uh, Corey Pine writes at at The Baffler. Uh, records a podcast called News From Nowhere, which I believe is currently going to return in a Patreon-only form, and has also wrote a book called Live, Work, 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 Die, uh, the, A Journey to the Savage Heart of Silicon Valley, if I'm remembering the... Yep, I am. I'm you, rem- you got it, yeah. Yeah, nailed that one. All right. Um, and it's just out in the UK. It is, uh, unless you're me, because then you get a nice PDF sent to you via emails. But um, yeah, you, um, the the seven people who listen to this in the UK uh, go out and buy this. Um, weirdly, there's the largest contingent of people listening to the show are in Amsterdam for some reason. Um, I'm not sure why that is, but hi to Amsterdam fans. Uh, Lovely city. Beautiful, beautiful city. I went there when it snowed, saw the Anne Frank house, uh, didn't go to one of those um, coffee shops. Lovely city. Stayed on a boat. It was great. Um, oh, yeah, I did that too. It's the best way to, best, it's the only way to, to uh, stay. Better than a hostel, cheaper than a hotel. Oh, yeah. Uh, Very wet. Uh, mine was at least. Um, speaking of cities, uh, you're in Portland, right? Yeah, Portland, Oregon. That Portland. I went to Reed College, so I, I know the, the city a bit. Oh, okay. Yeah, ex-Reedy here. Um, but one of the things I was going to ask you about before we get stuck into the book is um, I heard you on a Hell of a Way to Die a couple of weeks back talking about the... Um, kind of Unite the Right 2 that happened there, or the spin-off or associated riots that happened in Portland. And I just kind of wanted to get a little update on that, because um, I haven't heard what's happened since. I mean, it was a, a fucked up day, not nearly as bad as Charlottesville, but still pretty fucked up. And um, yeah, maybe what's the city and... Uh, what what have things been like since then? Has anything changed? Well, ahead of the rally, there was uh, some concern that it would be uh, another Charlottesville in the sense that there was potential for someone to, uh, you know, get killed uh, since the uh, right-wing group that uh, was staging the rally had announced its intention to bring uh, weapons uh, for its... Uh, make a show of force um and uh it seems that they did but uh the the main uh sort of takeaway from the day was that the police um showed an extreme amount of bias in their tactics and and charged the uh uh crowd of counter-protesters left-wing and liberal counter-protesters um based on uh 
what I'm comfortable describing as a pretty flimsy pretext. So what happened subsequently... Uh, thrown bottles, right? Or something equally similar. Yeah, exactly. Uh, what's happened subsequently is that the chief of police went on a local uh, right-wing talk radio program and basically bragged about uh, her uh, officer's um, performance uh, beating up hippies uh, and... Uh, bragged about uh, not paying any attention to uh, instructions from the mayor, who's nominally in charge of the police force. Uh, so a lot of the scrutiny subsequently uh, has moved on to the uh, leadership of the police department and the rank and file and uh, questions about, you know, uh, are is there meaningful civilian control uh, and are, is there some bias on the force uh, against... Uh, left-wing or uh, protesters who are opposed to President Trump. So uh, nothing has happened, uh, except that the right-wing uh, groups that were involved in the rally have had uh, other uh, subsequent armed protests in Seattle. Uh, and I think there's another one planned for Seattle soon. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't say that the situation has uh, changed much, uh, but there's a added element of uh, dread and anxiety and uncertainty uh, because of the way that the police handled the situation. And it seems like very little political will uh, by elected office holders to address the situation. They may be struggling with exactly what to do. Hmm. Yes, uh, that was disturbing stuff when that um, chief of police was basically saying, haha, these bunch of hippie cucks can't stand a flashbang to the face and uh yeah that wasn't much fun at all um well it was not quite so brazen but it, it was bad enough uh hmm. that uh you know people were quite shocked and uh given that the uh chief police is an african-american woman i think a lot of people were surprised that she would take this tack but yeah, um her, i was the department that she came from, uh, Oakland, California, is not exactly uh, known as a model of progressive policing either. So, um, you know, this is uh, this is not just a local problem. Unfortunately, it's just that in in Portland we've had uh, uh, high frequency of these sort of provocative right wing uh, marches, and uh, the police department has responded with uh, sort of, uh, I guess, what would be the phrase? Uh, historically consistent level of uh, unprofessionalism. <laughs> so it's been quite accentuated here. But the mm -hmm. same trends are present, uh, I would say, around the U.S. right now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, interesting times. Um, let's get on to something slightly more... Um, less depressing but only very slightly because it's Silicon Valley and well not depressing for you because you got to write a book about it and it came out and it was good and people liked it and I like it but um before we go into the book itself uh because it's written by you in first person about a chapter in your life um why not tell the folks listening at home and in Amsterdam um a little bit about yourself, um, you know, where you come from, what do you do, what what is your role? 
Sure. Well, uh, I am a uh, born uh, Pacific Northwesterner, raised in this part of the country in Washington State. Um, although uh, in my career as a journalist, I've I've traveled uh, and lived uh, abroad fairly extensively. Um, I have been working as a journalist since I was in college, really, and uh, you know most of that time doing investigative reporting and, and print media. Although now uh, I mostly freelance uh, for magazines uh, and do a podcast. Moved on to the tech world. Uh, always been interested in tech, uh, and at a certain point in. Uh, my career around the time of the Great Recession in 2008, I decided to um, try to leave the print media and join the digital media where everybody seemed to be making more money and uh, seemed to be happier. Uh, I was a bit naive uh, and I described my progressive disillusionment uh, in the early chapters of the, of the book. Uh, but yeah, that's the short version. A very uh, uh, working class background. Um, been uh, pretty committed uh, leftist most of my most of my adult life, and um, you know I've tried to focus my journalism on uh, issues that uh, made me angry. Journalism has been my my uh, tool for. Uh, uh, Seeking uh, revenge for all of my uh, aggrievements collected through life. So, cool. And um, the so just before you started the the journey that led up to the book, you were working at a um, company called uh, Demotics. It was like a um, photography company. Yeah, it was a it was a photo uh, news service um, online only with uh, a network of freelance contributors about thirty thousand when I joined uh, all over the world, and that ended up getting disrupted pretty hard, right? Well, you know the company it was the startup itself a small team was was sort of promising a kind of disruption on its own. The idea was, uh, you know, now that smartphones are, are fairly ubiquitous, uh, anyone can be a news pr- photographer, provided they're in the right place at the right time and have a minimum level of competency. So the business model was uh, we would solicit uh, contributions from uh, not just uh, wannabe photojournalists, but uh, members of the general public who might happen to come across something newsworthy and then help them sell those pictures to established media organizations uh, operating as an agency might and take a percentage of the, the revenue from that sale. Um, and actually, by, by photo agency standards, it was offering a pretty good deal, a 50-50 split, whereas established agencies would take more like 70 or 80 percent. So uh, it, it, it was uh, disruptive in its own sense, and, and actually the, the photojournalist union in the UK was pretty hostile to the startup for understandable reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, yeah, w- it was acquired, as many startups are, uh, by a larger company. Uh, this, uh, in this case, it was a Bill Gates corporation called Corbis, 
which no longer really exists in the same form. But, uh, yeah, they bought the company and, and uh, pretty much destroyed everything that was uh, novel or, or worthwhile about it in, in short order. Uh, and I, I resigned pretty quickly after that. Um, I felt that some of the cuts and changes they wanted to make were going to put our our contributors in, in danger, in even greater danger, I would suppose. Um, so uh, I, I resigned in a public way. Cool. And so pretty much after that, you go out to the valley to seek your fortune in California. <laughs> yeah. Well, there Kinda. was uh, there was a, a period of uh, you know unemployment and disillusionment that had to take place in between, but it was really the start of my uh, coming to understand how the tech industry really worked versus the uh, the PR image that it puts out. Um, so yeah, it was pr- maybe a, a year or a year and a half after uh, resigning that job that I uh, went out to uh, San Francisco to. Uh, join the the ranks of uh, uh, startup entrepreneurs and, and write about the experience from a from a first person point of view. And um, one of the things I really liked about this was just how well, basically, first I could tell you've lived in Britain for some time because it's dry and sarcastic as hell, and uh, which is a compliment. And oh, thank you. Secondly. Um, how uh yeah the the dryness translated to the way the book was i guess structured and you never quite gave the game away that you totally saw through all the silicon valley bullshit and the your journey there was to uh, as a kind of anthropologist to and kind of freak show barker to kind of laugh at all these weirdos um, like, did was there any point where you thought, okay, I'm sincerely gonna go make it in Silicon Valley now? You know, uh, I, I was somewhat disillusioned when I began the the enterprise, but uh, certainly a a large part of my uh, personality really wanted to succeed in a sense. So uh, I would say the whole time I was reporting the book, I was pretty conflicted. Uh, in even in some ways that I didn't fully appreciate at the time, about my uh, desire to succeed versus my desire to uh, satirize or, or you know to hold up the the industry to ridicule. So uh, you know that's a difficult that's a difficult question. I'm still sort of uh, you know when I think back on the experience, it's I, I still have this mix of emotions uh about it and certainly at the time you know while i was going through it i I was i was pretty invested in the idea of succeeding in a certain sense at least in terms of getting attention um which uh you know i didn't do but i i i i think as an american completely internalize the uh the idea of entrepreneurship and that and the narrative of of rags to riches uh, in a way that uh, was really toxic <laughs> for my own uh, well being um, and even though I I knew that in some ways uh, the whole industry was uh, built on lies uh, it was it was hard to um, 
it was hard to escape that that mode of thinking. I, I think I didn't even really get there until uh, the second draft <laughs> of the manuscript. Um, you know, in some sense, I was still uh, invested in 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 achieving. Uh, something as an entrepreneur, although I knew that, you know, from my reporting, uh, that success was often, uh, you know, a masquerade, like uh, the success of the the company that I had worked at, the Modix, uh, being acquired was supposedly a good thing, but it was actually the beginning of them, like of the company, mm. uh, and I knew uh, from reporting the statistics of you know, like a, a 95% failure rate for tech startups. Uh, so, you know, I, I, intellectually I knew that I, w- I was in a, engaged in a doomed uh, and insane enterprise, uh, but still emotionally I was invested in, in coming out, out a winner uh, and in some way even telling the story as a winner. So it took, it took quite a lot of, of work uh, in a therapeutic sense to, to even get past that. And so the, yeah. Sorry, my uh, I have a kitten and it's it's going insane and attacking <laughs> oh, my headphone cords here. So no problem. This podcast has a weird history of cats uh, attacking guests. I, I'm not sure quite what it is, but um, I don't know if I'm maybe like putting out some kind of like dog, dog whistle for cats. But um, no, it's not. He's been, he's just like this. He's four months old and um, teething and. Uh, He's ready to kill. Awesome. Uh, and just going back to what you're saying there, why do you think? I, I don't want to single out Americans because pretty much everyone has this, but that drive to want to succeed at something that's so that's got such long odds, and where anyone with half a brain knows that. Um, it's about knowing the right people and having gone to the same Stanford class as a someone who has already made it. Why can even smart people like you uh, buy that line that anyone can make it in Silicon Valley? Well, it's it's a it's a lifetime of acculturation. I mean, it seems uh, it seems obvious um, if you're from almost anywhere else in the world, but. Uh, work hard and you will succeed against the odds is is the core message uh, of American life, and it's uh, you know it's beaten into us uh, from uh, you know our, our infancy. Uh, it's in every children's book. It's in every uh, television program. Uh, it's in it's in the official uh, uh, you know governing documents of the society and the and the founding narratives. So, um, you know, uh, and part of that is, is uh, you know, a rejection of uh, or certainly a suspicion of anything that uh, speaks to a, a class uh, hierarchy. Now, uh, that undoubtedly exists in America, but uh, intellectually, uh, the reflex is to uh, reject it as an explanation. So uh, I think it's simply... Uh, you know, not just uh, not just uh, uh, propaganda from an economic perspective uh, that uh, requires uh, or that enables you know workers to 
fulfill their place in our style of capitalism, but something intrinsic to the culture uh, to the extent that that's even separable from the economic system. Uh, it, it's simply in, in the water. Mm. You know, so uh, I, I, I would say, um, you know, <clears throat> I, I did live, I, you know, I, I lived uh, in, the, in Britain for about five years before starting this book and um, uh, uh, in, in London and Brighton. And I would say that, uh, you know, that idea that that you as an individual will be the one to, to defy the odds and succeed is about as American as, uh, you know, the idea that you, as a British person, you're born into an uh, inescapable uh, sense of, of misery, <laughs> you know, uh, and, and uh, uh, immutability, you know, like that the nothing will ever change. And I, I think if, if you can say that one is characteristically British, uh, the other is equally characteristically American. Um, to the extent that those kind of stereotypes are true. So I think that there's something, uh, uh, like an American would never ask that, that question of how, how could you possibly believe it? Because everybody <laughs> simply believe, everybody simply believes that. Mm. And it, it's, it's actually, uh, in some ways difficult to publish a book like this that, that attacks that core myth because it's something that people simply don't want to hear. Mm. Uh, but, you know that may be changing uh, now. I think that uh, with this uh, this uh, millennial and and the younger uh, millennial generation, whatever they're called, uh, you I have it's uh, Generation Y, but I hate that. So we'll just call yeah, them it's, millennials. It's, it's awful. Uh, in, in any event, you've got uh, uh, a generation the size of the baby boomers with uh, none of the uh, advantages in the sense that. Uh, uh, you know they're they're going to have a uh, uh, high chance of uh, attaining employment or, or mortgages or uh, you know easy credit or any of the things that allowed boomers to attain uh, relative prosperity. None of that is coming to this generation. So uh, I think you've got a uh, historic uh, openness to the idea that uh, we do have a class hierarchy that all things are not uh, achievable. On an individual entrepreneurial basis, and and that fundamental uh, structural changes are needed uh, if we're going to survive as a society. So I do think it's changing, but it it's a it's a it's a core change. You know, it's it's a core cultural change, and it's going to be very difficult and arduous, I think, for a lot of people to come around to this. Mm. Yeah, and um, so once you're in. San Francisco, in Silicon Valley, uh, you're obviously not arriving like at the kind of uh, halt and catch fire early days of it. It was when these ideas and the idea of Silicon Valley itself was very firmly entrenched, and probably that uh, comedy show has been on TV for a while by then. But uh, so, yeah, the 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 Mike Judge show, you mean? Yeah. I think uh, first this first couple of seasons have been out, but um, yeah. And um, I certainly miss I certainly miss the 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 easiest money period. Hmm. Although I wasn't quite aware of that when I when I showed up. And uh, what what's life like there for someone uh, doing what you did, and what kind of quality of life 
can you expect? Uh, I I would say that it was the the worst uh, living standards I'd encountered uh, since um, I guess my uh, impoverished uh, post college days. I mean, uh, uh, barracks like housing situations, um, uh, very little uh, privacy or uh, sort of uh, level of day to day dignity uh, in the sense that. Um, uh, you know, everybody's, uh, uh, stressed out, overworked, uh, scrambling for, uh, uh, dwindling number of opportunities and, uh, and, uh, exhausted by, uh, the insane demands of, uh, an industry that has a, uh, a long line of uh, eager, young, uh, replaceable uh, workers who um, do not even realize in many cases the degree to which they're exploited because of that uh, hope that they will be the breakout uh, you know, entrepreneur, the next Zuckerberg or the next Jobs. Um, it's, uh, it's a toxic environment. And you know, I, I experienced it as a as a white guy, which is uh, probably the easiest way to get through uh, in, in the tech scene. Um, I, for for women or uh, people of color, I think it's uh, especially uh, black or Latino people. It's um, it's an intolerable uh, uh, place. It's. Uh, you know, only really a, a pleasant environment if uh, you can genuinely count yourself as as one of the uh, winners with uh, you know a, a good salary or a, a venture capital funding, or or you're the one uh, who's uh, staging the conferences uh, and meetups and uh, uh, you know startup parties as opposed to uh, hustling to try to get attention, uh, but most people are are doing that hustle, and uh, their stories are the ones that aren't usually told, and those are the ones that I, I set out to to tell. Or I realized that uh, I would sort of be bound uh, by you know journalistic ethics to tell. If I, it, it's funny the reaction to the book um, because people have heard the success narrative so many times. That they expect to hear it, uh, and if you don't give it to them, they get, they get a little bit upset. So some of the criticism I got from the book uh, from people who are still invested in the the industry was that well, you didn't talk about the people that that succeeded, and and uh, you know the, the reality is that's a statistically insignificant number of people. Well, uh, yeah. You know the so, the, the, fail, so. the fa- failure is the rule, and for a place that. Uh, you know, and its rhetoric prizes failure as some kind of uh, uh, character-building exercise on the path to success. I, I thought I, I owed it to, to show uh, what it was really like for people who really had no hope of success, but had persuaded themselves, uh, often at great personal cost, that uh, entrepreneurship was, was going to be their ticket to uh, uh, financial stability and, and uh, personal freedom and and an escape from the sort of drudgery of, uh, you know, a would-be 
uh, startup uh, tycoon's life. Mm. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting uh, book to place into. I mean, obviously nonfiction, but um, do you consider it journalism or anthropology, even or uh, a self- lot of the review? Uh, you know, uh, I actually uh, a po- another podcast I was on is uh, the host is an anthropologist, and he said that he can he would teach it in his courses as an example of anthropology. And I suppose I suppose it is an anthropological uh, approach, although I don't really have any training in that. Uh, you know, it, I do consider it journalism. I'm I'm always curious where it gets shelved in bookstores, uh, often in the business section. <laughs> and you know, I that's suppose a, that's appropriate enough, but it, it, it is, uh, I'd say, more of an anthropological study than it is something that a uh, MBA uh, might might produce. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I, in terms of the the approach, I was, you know, I was trying to take a more uh, old school sort of new journalism uh, tack and. Um, you know, be be transparent about uh, my my place in the reporting and uh, and include it uh, mainly for for narrative uh, consistency. I knew that um, if I much of the way that uh, narrative nonfiction uh, writing is done now is a more conventional approach would have been to pick a company or a, a single entrepreneur to follow and to tell their story over a period of time. Um, and I knew that there were a lot of things I wanted to cover about the tech industry where if I had taken that approach, I wouldn't have been able to get them into the story because uh, you'd simply have to have amazing luck in order for to find one subject uh, for a story that would cover all those areas. So... I realized that if you know I made the story about my own efforts, uh, you know, however, uh, however uh, sincere or insincere or, or uh, however long a shot I had at, at making it, I would still be able to explore these different areas from you know how venture capital funding works to uh, you know what's going on with the transhumanist scene and how does that inform decision-making in this industry uh, to, you know, the sort of seedy or underbelly of, uh, you know, like, how, how do these, you know, what's the, what, what are the sexual uh, habits of the uh, entrepreneurs and, you know, how, how do they party? Uh, all, all of that stuff um, would have been difficult to, I think, uh, find in a single subject. So I... I decided to make it a first-person story, principally so that I could, uh, you know, set up the situations that I wanted to be able to cover. Yeah, funny you mentioned the uh, the sexual mores of uh, founders. There's this book I read earlier this year called uh, Brotopia by Emily Chang. Oh uh, yeah, I've, I've read the excerpts, but I haven't I haven't read the whole book yeah. yet. Uh, I'd, I'd stick to the excerpts. The the whole book is pretty much like. Uh, kind of neoliberal cheerleading for founders, but um, it's kind of like a it's hire more women guards kind of argument, basically. But um, the one chapter on the sex lives of Silicon Valley founders is pretty interesting. 
Yeah, yeah. is that the one that was in Vanity Fair about it the, was, yeah. the the part the the ecstasy parties and mm. stuff like that? Yeah, yeah I think uh, I, I might have had better luck getting invited to those if I had been a, a woman, but um, I did go to a Cougar Night and describe that scene in the book. Um, yeah, it was it was pretty. Uh, it's not my idea of a good time. <laughs> uh, anyway, yeah. So, Brotopia was uh, basically like uh, the, the way to fix this industry is to hire more diversely. Yeah, and that's the only way to fix the industry. And we should not look at any kind of structural or big picture things at all. It's just uh, yeah, Marcy Zuckerberg. That's a really common attitude uh, among, you know, self-styled progressives in in San Francisco, and I would say that the libertarianism there is so entrenched that that people don't even appreciate how, how uh, you know, how right-wing their politics actually are. Um, I, what one of the thing one of my lines on book tour was that. Uh, you know the political spectrum in Silicon Valley really ranges from libertarian to fascist, and I would say that a lot of people who would describe themselves as liberals, or even as belonging to the left, uh, in that place, uh, are actually libertarians, because you know the the issues that uh, cause them to define as liberal tend to be uh, re- revolving around you know sex and drugs. Mm. Uh, uh, and when you quiz them on uh, economic issues, they're they're anti-union, uh, anti-regulation, and and pro uh, pro market. So the Republicans who smoke pot, basically, which you know it, it is a libertarian in most places. It's <laughs> <laughs> yeah. pretty much dictionary definition. But, um we're going to have a, a good long chat about the, um, I guess, the alt-right and the neo-reactionary guys and the and the roots of Silicon Valley, which I hadn't really thought about or looked into before I read them in, in the book. But uh, first, let's have a musical break. Um, if you've been listening to this podcast a while, you will have heard uh, Dow from Baton Rouge, Louisiana, uh, three times already, four times. That's because they've released five albums this year. And the last one they're going to be releasing is called The Magus. Sorry, it's just called Magus. And it's pretty much a straight-ahead uh, DAO album. If you've listened to early stuff, it's uh, anarchist, DIY, hardcore, kind of crusty, sludgy doom. And it's absolutely amazing. And these guys are incredible. Uh, there's a really good interview with them in Stereo Gum, which you should be checking out. Uh, I've probably retweeted that a bunch of times. But um, I'm going to play a track off that album, which should be out on the 31st. So probably it'll be out by the time this uh, episode is released. And it's the track's called The Changing Prince, and it's awesome, like every single thing this band does. Uh, so... The Summer of Thou keeps on rolling, and here's uh, the change in prints.
So that was uh, Changing Prints of Magus by Dow. And um, yeah, they've got four other albums that came out this year. They're more prolific than most bands in their entire careers. And they're incredible. So check out their 20-odd albums that they've done. From Call No Man Happy Until He Is Dead to Magus, which you just heard. And um, But we're still here with Corey Pine. And... We went into... Okay, so just to explain, the, the book itself has a kind of two halves, except the first half is about two-thirds. So it's two-thirds, then one-third. The two-thirds, uh, roughly, is about the what we've just been speaking about, his experience going the anthropology side of things. And the, I'd say, last three chapters of the book are kind of... Uh, zooms out a little bit and talks about the people that you're not going to meet because they're weird near reactionaries and people like Jeff Bezos and Peter Thiel who you know no one expects anyone to get an interview with anytime soon especially an honest one because these people know how messed up they are and that if they're honest we would be down there with pitchforks so the last few chapters are kind of about stuff you mentioned before which is transhumanism um, the kind of libertarian to fascist political spectrum and just for people who've been living under a rock for the last 20 years uh, what's what is transhumanism what is uh, what is libertarianism as Silicon Valley defines it? Which is probably a little different to what, like, you know, Rand Paul people would talk would be talking about. Like, yeah, what are, yeah. I mean, there was uh, there was an early attempt to describe Silicon Valley style libertarianism uh, in the '90s, and I think it was I, I forget the names of the uh, guys that proposed this term, but it, it was uh, described as the California ideology, which um, was a bit uh, a bit heavier on the, uh, uh, I guess, sex, drugs, and rock and roll side, uh, the countercultural influence, uh, and the uh, utopianism than, uh, I, I would say, Milton Friedman-style libertarianism, you know, the Chicago school. Uh, that uh, or or Ayn Rand style libertarianism, uh, which had a, a sort of a, a stern, uh, brutal sort of face to it, mm. um, and uh, transhumanism uh, blends really well with that kind of California uh, counterculture uh, libertarianism because it's it's the idea that uh, that uh, humanity is at a Point where it's about to direct its own evolution, uh, whether through uh, uh, genetic uh, engineering of the species, uh, whether through uh, artificial intelligence and automation, uh, or through some uh, combination of technologies uh, that produces uh, a related uh, phenomenon uh, that I talk about called the singularity. Um, 
people who are familiar with mathematics might be familiar with, with the idea of a singularity where it has a sort of precise meaning, but in uh, sort of political or philosophical terms, uh, it's it's more of a, uh, a concept that seems like something out of science fiction. I mean, it actually was coined by a science fiction author. Uh, the idea that soon our uh, our rate of uh, technological advancement uh, will accelerate such that uh, our our minds and and bodies merge with our inventions and uh, sort of spread through the universe like some kind of uh, uh, you know. Uh, milk of, of God or something, uh, uh, you know, suffusing the universe with our intelligence. Um, it's, it's pretty wild stuff, but it's actually uh, really common to find people who think this in Silicon Valley uh, who genuinely believe it, and a lot of them are located in the, you know, executive suites. Um, it's the it's the sort of uh, uh, the religious uh, uh, faith that keeps them going. Uh, you know, when when money fails to motivate, it's this it's this uh, idea that uh, they're uh, building a a future in which um, uh, ultimate liberation will be achieved for all uh, deserving. Uh, you know, humans and post-humans. Mm-hmm. Emphasis on the deserving, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is tied in with um, some pretty uh, reactionary uh, ideas, and, and I trace uh, the the lineage of some of those ideas to the uh, eugenics movement of the early 20th century, which was um, also really uh, centered in the same part of the country. Uh, in uh, uh, California, mm-hmm. um, and, and uh, I think the was it the founder of Stanford University was a major eugenicist, or yeah, that... Stan- well, Stanford himself, um, you know, didn't expound uh, that much, uh, but his uh, hand-picked uh, uh, president of uh, Stanford University was this guy David Starr Jordan, who was a avid eugenicist and, and spoke uh, and wrote at length about his uh, ideas of um, uh, you know uh, how the uh, uh, poverty is uh, hereditary uh, and it's biological and uh, basically the uh, flood of unfit immigrants uh, and uh, uh, other undesirables uh, need to be uh, bred out uh, for the betterment of the species. So they were very crudely applying uh, ideas uh, borrowed from, uh, you know, livestock breeders uh, and applying them to society. And, and uh, you know, the early eugenicists who were centered around Stanford succeeded in enacting a lot of these ideas into policy in California and, and thousands of People were uh, institutionalized, sterilized, and, and basically tortured uh, under uh, that kind of regime. And it was a, it actually turned out to be a, quite an inspiration for the German Nazi Party, 
And in the in the twenties and thirties, there was a heavy uh, correspondence between California and uh, Germany about uh, how these eugenics uh, policies might best be implemented. So you can draw a uh, a pretty clear line from the origins of Silicon Valley uh, to uh, the Third Reich and and back. Even after the war, um, I follow uh, one of the early uh, pioneers of venture capital was a guy named Otto von Bolschwing, who was actually uh, a deputy to, uh, if I remember correctly, Adolf Eichmann, one of the architects of the Holocaust. Uh, and he was an aristocratic uh, uh, German spy who uh, the CIA saw fit to... Uh, uh, smuggle into the United States and give him an assumed identity and set him up uh, um, as a tech investor in uh, the San Jose area. And he was involved in some really uh, uh, successful companies that were marketing military technology to the Israeli government and others uh, before he was uh, outed as a result of a State Department investigation. And Justice Department, I think, was involved into former Nazi war criminals. So eventually, his identity came out, um, whereupon, uh, you know, this person who had been plugged in to, to the center of uh, business and politics in Silicon Valley was pretty much uh, written out of its history. Uh, but uh, he wasn't the only such character. There were some others like that who who wound up in positions of influence. And as I write in the book, there were many uh, esteemed citizens of uh, Palo Alto and Mountain View and Stanford uh, who were uh, supportive of uh, the Third Reich and who uh, carried the torch for eugenicist ideas even after the war. Wow. Yeah, I bet if people don't like uh, hearing that hard work won't necessarily get you ahead, they're probably not going to like hearing that venture capital was literally invented by Nazis. Uh, so that'll be fun for people to learn. Um, well, you know, I mean, there's a tendency to say that all this is in the past, but I, I think when you look at uh, particularly uh, a lot of the, the biotech startups that are clustered around Silicon Valley and um, some of their stated objectives, uh, very little has changed in terms of the the worldview that's being proposed, uh, it's it's simply uh, adopted a slicker messaging. Yeah, and that, um... ra rather than having very brutal sort of uh, race uh, uh, appeals, it's often couched in terms of uh, improving the species. And I would say that uh, you know the the idea of who who counts as a as a fit white citizen uh, has changed. I think that in many ways uh, uh, other racial categories that are, are deemed uh, you know, uh, to be congenitally more intelligent, especially uh, Chinese and, and Hindu uh, South Asians are uh, allowed into the, the honorary whites club in Silicon Valley. Um, it's uh, 
it's unpleasant to to talk about in such crude terms, but uh, it it reflects the the reality of uh, hiring practices, and I think many of the these sort of biases will come out uh, after a few drinks uh, mm. in private company. Yeah, yeah, it, it's uh, it's often really remarked upon that you know, people in Silicon Valley will be like white or Southeast Asian, and there's never any um, talk of hiring Jewish people. And if you have a, like a very crude IQ based um, understanding of which races are best, then Jews are right up there. But they always get very written out of the um, of the narrative. Well, the uh, the 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 Google uh, co-founders, I think, uh, are Jewish, and um, or at least yeah. one of them. Mark is, Zuckerberg and, as well, and Zuckerberg, <laughs> but. Uh, you know, it's there is a there is a undercurrent still of anti-Semitism, and and um, I'm not saying that any of them individually are anti-Semites, but uh, both of those platforms, I think it's it's pretty uh, uh, pretty clear that they have tolerated uh, and, and promoted anti-Semitic content in a way that the traditional media did not. Um, you know, there was a, a taboo. Uh, uh, against, uh, uh, say, accepting money to advertise, uh, you know, Holocaust denial. But that's essentially what Google and Facebook have done for 10 or 15 years, and I, I think you can start to see the results now in the political culture. Um, Big time, yeah. That brings yeah. us right back to where we started, really. So well, guys right. in the streets yeah. in Kekistan flags. I mean, that's that's really been the horrifying thing about producing this book, and particularly those final chapters that dwell on the alt-right. Um, you know, I started the reporting in, in 2014, and uh, uh, at the time I was writing about, you know, neo-reactionary uh, subcultures, uh, neo-Nazi subcultures online, uh, and tracing some of the connections to Silicon Valley companies. And I really didn't expect this to become sort of the dominant thread in right-wing politics, uh, not just in the U.S., but internationally as well. And I didn't expect them to gain power. So the speed at which, with which that happened was uh, pretty frightening. Yeah, and I guess uh, and right in 2014, that would be like just before Gamergate happened and made this kind of knocked all those ideas into the mainstream, or almost well, mainstream. That's, that's right. I, well, I mean... Uh, what is the mainstream anymore? I think um, that's something that uh, is really difficult to answer. Um, uh, the gamer culture, especially, I mean, it, it certainly rivals Hollywood in terms of you know revenue and attention. Um, so uh, I, I, you know, I confess in the book that I was guilty of uh, uh, failing to pay attention to Gamergate. I think ma- mostly because that. Uh, it was called Gamergate. It, it sounds yeah. like uh, it sounds like something you don't have to pay attention to if you don't play video games. <laughs> um, and it's a term that the uh, the people who are waging this campaign of uh, you know stalking and harassment and, and terrorism uh, it's the term that they applied to it. Mm-hmm. So I think it was a big mistake for the press to even adopt that language. I think if we'd uh, described it accurately, we being the press at the time, um, we would have seen 
more clearly uh, uh, incipient fascist movement. But uh, because it was gamers and because gamers are pretty easy to mock, uh, or that subculture remains somewhat easy to mock, even though it's pretty well in the mainstream, um, uh, that campaign was allowed to proceed uh, without much consequence for the people who participated in it. So, you know, if you have a bunch of people who who uh, essentially get jumped into a, a, a kind of uh, a radicalization campaign, uh, face no uh, legal or personal consequences for doing so, and in fact uh, only feel emboldened, um, it's not a surprise that you start to see these kind of rallies in the, the actual public square in the street. Uh, so in retrospect, it, it it's all sort of it's easier to see how all those pieces fit together. At the time, I, it was harder, and certainly, um, you know, the language that was used to talk about GamerGate was part of the problem. Yeah, yeah. I mean, even online it, at the time, it was just a bunch of dumb nerds talking about how DARPA was inventing feminist games. And everyone was just dunking on them like we always did. And now they're in the White House. But, um... Well, yeah, and you have, uh, you know, Steve Bannon was bragging about... I mean, who knows uh, Who knows whether he's uh, uh, exaggerating his foresight when he said, uh, uh, supposedly, uh, you know, this is our, this is our lever mm. um, for building a movement when he saw Gamergate happening. That was his account after the fact. I mean, who knows? He might be uh, inflating his, you know, his powers of foresight there. But uh, you know, certainly a lot of people did see the opportunity to build a movement, and um, you know, we're stuck with it now. Yeah, and <coughs> just noticed while we're talking that I got this new laptop. It's very nice, and it's got a, um, a sticker on the front that says Oculus Ready, and that means I can plug an Oculus Rift uh, VR rig into it. And Oculus is run by a guy named Palmer Lucky, who is a total Gamergate shitlord. He donated a bunch of money in the 2016 election to uh, spread memes in order to yeah, generate for, tr- some... for Trump, yeah. Yeah, and he's now uh, invented a digital border wall of, like... Um, cameras that will recognize people and track them and potentially even shoot them. Yeah, so. he's he's bidding for the uh, border security contract with um, with uh, some of Peter Thiel's associates. And uh, I believe their company is called Anduril, um, yeah, which is a Lord, Lord of, of the Rings Lord reference. <laughs> yeah, yeah Lord of the Rings is. reference. And uh, like, like Thiel's company, Palantir. And, and I, I, I don't know what book that was in, but apparently it means uh, in in Elvish or whatever, uh, it means Sword of the West or Flame of the West or something like that, which um, you know it, why, why would you why would you choose that particular name unless you were uh, you know, one of these uh, Western culture obsessives? I mean I, does, does does Palmer Lucky believe in in uh, the, the white genocide theory? I'd really like to know. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, and, and it's it's my uh, eternal frustration that uh, no one who ever gets access to these people uh, will ask them these questions. Mm. Yeah, uh, even uh... you know, Kara Swisher at Recode is 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 probably the most aggressive questioner in the Silicon Valley press corps, and um, uh, she she has even danced around that kind of thing when she had Mark Zuckerberg in uh, for an interview recently. Uh, you know, it's just, it's just not some, the blacklisting is, uh, is extreme, uh, uh, in Silicon Valley when it comes to the press. So, uh, I, I never really expected to be in the position to, to get to ask those questions. And, um, you know, if you read like the New York Times review of my book, there was some criticism that, uh, that I didn't. Uh, you know, well, get you can that kind uh, of... break into the Google campus, like yeah, uh, Mission yeah, Impossible yeah. style, or or that I didn't simply uh, ask for an invitation. But you know what you get when you when you play the access game with these companies is a, a Potemkin Village kind of experience with a lot of ground mm. rules. So uh, you know that's not what I set out to do, um, and uh, you know I really I really don't expect. Uh, because of the nature of my criticism and some of the connections I make to to be afforded that opportunity in the future. I know that a lot of authors who have been critical of uh, the tech industry have been subsequently courted by it. Um, like, uh, uh, you know, the, the novelist Gary Steingart wrote a, a good book called uh, Super Sad True Love Story that was, that was pretty... Uh, critical of some of the trends in tech and and after that you know he uh google sent him a google glass and invited him to speak on campus and and that's um and guess whose book i'm reviewing next week oh yeah yeah he's He's got got a new one one out yeah uh yeah i wish i was as prolific as as uh, the five album a year band or or (laughs) steingart who seems to be on a book a year sort of clip but uh such is not my. They're not good, so it doesn't really matter. You don't like Shangar's new book? Uh, well, I haven't actually read the new one. I, I didn't like oh. Super Sad True Love Story. I thought that was, uh, thought that was bad for this a lot of reasons. Well, the story sort of fell the, the story sort of fell apart at the end, but uh, mm-hmm. I, I thought he set the scene pretty well. Um, although I, I did prefer Jennifer Egan's um, book, uh, the this the Goon Squad. Book? Yeah, very yeah. very good one. Yeah. But, um, uh, and anyway, back to your questions. Yeah. Um, well, there's only really one left, and um, unfortunately, it's the most difficult one, which is how is it how is it possible that we can make Silicon Valley or the tech industry better, or even the internet better? Because the internet's terrible. How can how is it possible to reform this this thing we found ourselves in right now? Well, um, I think, uh, you know, realistically, uh, I think that the EU is, is taking the right approach generally uh, in terms of uh, regulating the, uh, you know, the surveillance capitalism uh, business model and even making some efforts to, uh, to restructure the networking protocols um, that allow some of the worst abuses to happen. I think, on a on a technological level, um, the the internet itself does need to be sort of re re 
engineered. Um, and there are actually some efforts in Europe to, uh, to do that, to, to rewrite the protocols and, um, in a way that would allow, uh, people who are copyright holders to be compensated even automatically when their content is accessed. Uh, you know, there are lots of, uh, possibilities. Um, so I think we need to start with, uh, a debate and discussion and, and a lot of imagination about what would a, what would a good internet look like? Now that we know all the horrors that this system can unleash, on us, um, assuming we don't want to do away with this technology entirely, not that that would even be possible, uh, but what would it look like if it, if it were worked in a more humane way? So I think we need to start there, and then uh, we need to uh, realize that it's a, it's a political problem at this point. Uh, there's been a, a tremendous tendency, uh, and this is fueled by that, that entrepreneurial mythology, that uh, the industry can innovate its way out of all the problems it's created. And I think that that is a, a, a foolish uh, approach to keep following at this point. Uh, it's a political uh, crisis. It, it demands a political response. So that means, um, you know, regulation. It means uh, uh, antitrust. It means uh, legislation, uh, and I think ultimately uh, we need uh, people who are smarter than me uh, to come up with ways that we can democratically uh, sort of uh, control uh, innovation and, and new technologies and the way that they're introduced. I don't think it should be up to people like Jeff Bezos to decide how the rest of, uh, you know, life on Earth is going to uh, interact with these technologies simply because uh, they have uh, some sort of proprietary claim. That's, uh, that's not sustainable from an uh, environmental point of view. And I think if you look at, uh, you know, things like the uh, role of Facebook in the Rohingya genocide in Myanmar, for instance, uh, it's really a matter of life and death for people mm. uh, and you know that, to, um, take an there's a st um, statistic I read recently that um, in German towns where uh, Facebook has been adopted every uh, standard deviation above the mean of Facebook adoption leads to a, I think it's like a 50% rise in uh, hate crimes against migrants so more uh, Facebook I haven't eats. seen that but I find it completely believable Hmm, yeah, basically more Facebook e equals more hate crimes. And, uh, well, yeah. and it may, you know, people are, are putting a lot of scrutiny on Facebook now, like why isn't their moderation policy uh, uh, addressing this? I mean, it's, uh, again, it's foolish to expect that these people who created this problem are going to uh, come up with a way to solve it. I mean, uh, I, I criticized uh, some of the, the tech reporters for for not asking the simple question like i'd love for one of them to just simply ask jack what he uh you know jack dorsey of twitter what he thinks about uh uh you know the uh free speech rights for 
uh, for Nazis and where his personal beliefs sort of come on questions of race and IQ and things like that, uh, nobody's going to do it. <laughs> and, they, and as you suggested, they wouldn't answer anyway, uh, honestly. Uh, but what what they've said is is uh, bad enough. I mean, uh, if you read Mark Zuckerberg's interviews uh, on these questions, it's clear that uh, he is either uh, you know, unwilling or unable to get his head around the problem. Mm. So uh, it's not it's not up to him anymore, right? It's it's uh, it, it's now uh, a problem for the rest of us to force uh, these companies to do the right thing. Hell yeah! Uh, well, that's a nice note to leave off on. Um, forcing Mark Zuckerberg to do the right thing. Um, but so where can folks, uh, A, find the book and find your work and your, uh, your podcast as well, which I understand is coming back pretty soon. Oh, it's, it's back. Uh, it's, um, so the podcast, I'll go in reverse order, I guess. Uh, the podcast is called News From Nowhere. Uh, it's on Patreon uh, at patreon.com slash newsfromnowhere. Um, I do intend to resurrect the iTunes feed for free shows in order to grow the audience, but um, that's that's in the future, so look for the Patreon thing first. Um, and it comes out pretty much every week. Uh, I have a Twitter account where I post most of my work and comment on stuff. It's just at Corey Pine, uh, C-O-R-E-Y-P-E-I-N. And uh, a lot of my articles are available at uh CoreyPine.net, um, and the book uh, "Live, Work, 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 Die" is in local bookstores everywhere. That's my first recommendation mm-hmm. uh, for yes, finding it. it. Uh, and uh, other than that, you can go to uh, you know online uh, book merchants of your choosing and search for it, and it should be readily uh, available. And you can find links at. Uh, the dedicated website, liveworkworkworkdie.com. Yeah, and folks, it, it's good. Check it out. Thanks um, a lot yeah. for that recommendation and good questions too. <laughs> thanks. And thanks for, for being on here. Um, like I said, I've read your work for a while and listened to your podcast for a long time. And uh, yeah, it's good to see you uh, tackle like the big one of the biggest questions of our time. So, uh, yeah, thanks for that, and uh, well done. Much appreciated, and thanks for the invitation. Cool. So, um, yeah, folks, um, live, live, work, work, die. Uh, Live, work, 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 die. Sorry. Go read it. And um, we're going to pay a little tribute to our guest by playing a a band from his hometown. Um, Well, maybe not his hometown, his current town he lives in. Um, Clitorati are from Portland, Oregon. Uh, they're a four-piece. Uh, they've got members from Poison Idea, who are one of the biggest uh, punk bands from the town. They're fucking cool. Um, they've got a, a split out here with Violation Wound that's on Tank Crimes out of Oakland, all places. And uh, we're going to play a, a very thematically appropriate song here. It's called Alt Wrong. You know, like alt right, but they're they're wrong because they're bad. And, nice. Uh, yeah, it's it's a very clever pun. And um, 
it's a lot of shouting about how they're very bad people. And if you've listened to the show before, you've probably heard Neckbeard, Death Camp, and Gaylord, and people like that who are along a similar vein. This is more of a punk song than a metal song, but who cares, because it's great. Uh, so check them out on Tank Crimes. Check out Corey's stuff on what he just said about it. Check out his books. It's, again, really good. Uh, come back next week when... Hey, maybe Gary Steingart will have uh, written a really great book. Maybe he won't. It's it's about like a stockbroker or something. It's some Wall Street guy and he, he's sad about things. So not holding out high hopes, but yeah, we'll still be here talking about it. So come back next week for that and leave reviews and follow on Twitter and such. And uh, yeah, check out Kotorati.